Have you ever needed to be rescued before? I've been rescued a few times. But the one that I remember most came on a hot summer day when I was living in Northern California. Now, I was about 10 years old, and I was out of school for the summer months. And on this day, I had arranged to meet up with my friends so that we could construct a mighty fort in the fields of our town. This is something that boys do. My plan was to ride my bike the three-mile journey to our secret location. Now remember, friends, this was a hot day. And I was a husky child. (laughs) Quite, quite round, in fact. And this particular day may have been my first day outside in a while. You see, during the summer months, I preferred the comforts of air conditioning, television, and sweet treats. And I knew in order to make it to my destination that I would need sustenance. At this time, I hadn't eaten lunch yet. So I got a backpack, and I filled it with cookies. (laughs) And then I got a water bottle, dumped the water out, and I filled it with some homemade sugar tea, of my own construction, extra sweet. I put on my helmet and my backpack, mounted my bike, opened the garage, and immediately felt the dry summer heat, and I began to sweat. Our house sat at the bottom of a very steep hill that I would need to climb on the first leg of this journey. So I rolled out of the driveway, turned up the hill, and I started to pedal up this hill. Now as I passed our neighbor's house, I started to feel dizzy and sick. Perhaps the cookies was a bad idea. Now, as I approached the second house on my right, it was about this time that I realized I was not going to make it. It was too hot, and I was in terrible shape. And as I felt lightheaded, I rode over the curb onto a stranger's yard and just fell over. (laughs) And I just gave up about two or three houses down from mine. (laughs) So I pulled out my sweet tea. I began to nurse it, thinking that it would help hydrate me. I don't know if that's a good idea or not, but it didn't help. As I lay on the ground, still feeling lightheaded, I started to get a little nervous. I was only two or three houses away from mine, but like I said, it was a really hot day. I was feeling dizzy and sick, and I was 10. After a few minutes, a car was approaching. And although I was embarrassed at my current state, laying on the grass with a bicycle between my legs, drinking sweet tea, I felt comforted, the fact that this car was coming. I wasn't alone. The car 
began to slow, and as they saw me, it began to speed up. (laughs) It drove right by me. The nerves came back. Again, only two houses away from mine. But soon another car drove by. This time it was my mom. She had gone out looking for me. Mother's intuition, she knew I wasn't going to make it. So she pulled over, rolled out her window, rolled down her window, and she said, Danny, get in the car. I said, okay. And I slowly got up, kind of shaky, but I put my bike in the back of her car. She turned around and we drove the 600 feet home. It was not my finest moment, and it was certainly not my fittest moment. Now, what did I learn from this experience? First, obviously, exercise and eating healthy is important. But secondly, in that moment of lying on the ground, on the side of the road, trying to cure my dizziness with sugar tea, I learned what it's like on a somewhat small and, I get it, pathetic scale, what it's to be like to want someone to help you and they see you and decide to just keep driving for whatever reason. Have you ever been in trouble and wanted someone to see you, to help you, to reach out? And not just, I guess, see you on the side of the road, but to see that you're struggling, maybe in your family life. Maybe at your work. Maybe with your emotional health, or your physical health, or your mental health. And you just want someone to see you, to care. We often hear the parable of the Good Samaritan and we consider the priest. And then we consider the Levite. And then we consider the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan. But friends, what about the guy lying on the side of the road? What's it like to be him? Many times while reading this story, I have just assumed that the man must be unconscious throughout the entire ordeal. But why do we assume that? What if he wasn't unconscious? What if at least for some parts of this experience, the man is awake and alert? And as he lays on the street, robbed, beaten, and naked... Does he feel hope, that sputter of hope, when he sees a holy man walking towards him? Surely a priest would help me. And what does he feel as the priest walks on by? You know that feeling? Some have often suggested that the priest would have passed by because the beaten man might have looked dead. 
And according to Leviticus 21, priests aren't supposed to touch dead people or else they cannot fulfill their priestly duties. They become defiled and unclean. But if you look at verse 30, the man who was beaten was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem sits on a, on a, a mountainous plateau, about 2,500 feet above sea level. The man was descending the mountain away from Jerusalem. Likewise, the priest, it says, is going down the road. He too is descending the mountain. In other words, the priest is leaving Jerusalem. He's leaving the temple. He is off the clock. He's done with his priestly duties in the temple. Additionally, the Mishnah, which is a commentary on Torah, a religious text for rabbis, teaches that priests are supposed to take responsibility for neglected dead bodies, especially if there are no family members present. This duty should take precedence over purity laws. So if the guy seemed dead, this off-the-clock priest should have done something. Or worse, the priest saw that the guy wasn't dead and just leaves him there like that. The dark reality is that the priest simply chooses not to help, to do nothing. And then the Levite, another holy religious man, comes walking down the hill away from Jerusalem, and he too sees the man and walks right on by. That beaten man is passed by twice by religious leaders. Many of you may remember on my first Sunday ever preaching here at Mountain View about three years ago, I told you all about a study that was done at Princeton Seminary in 1973. The seminary gathered up a bunch of students, these being future pastors. And the students were supposed to prepare a talk on the Good Samaritan. The students started in one building, filled out a questionnaire, and then they were told to hurry across campus to another building in order to give this talk on the Good Samaritan, this very text that we're studying this morning. But unknown to the seminary students, an actor was placed between the two buildings, hunched over and in clear need of help. Only 10% of the students offered aid to the man in need. One student actually saw the man, and at this point the man was on his knees, falling over, acting sick. The student stepped over him on his way to go give a talk on the Good Samaritan. Future pastors going to preach about helping people passing by people who need help. I was kind of nervous coming to church this morning. I'm looking around like, okay, God, who's it going to (laughs) be? Truth be told, we always have reasons not to help 
We're too busy. We are too tired. We don't have the money. We don't give handouts. We don't want to enable someone. We don't want to be put in harm's way. There are always going to be reasons not to help someone. But those moments, those moments that seem like an inconvenience, those moments where our routine and our lives are interrupted, friends, what if those were the moments that we were actually created for? What if life was all about the interruptions? What if that is why we are really here? People who live every day not helping anyone, going through their mundane routine, will eventually come to the end of their life completely and utterly disappointed. I've seen it. I've sat at the bedside of people dying who didn't care for anybody their whole life. And you know what? They're going out bitter. There's not a whole lot of people around their bedside. The very reason we exist is because of those interruptions. The Holy Spirit is in the business of interrupting us giving us opportunities to be who we truly are. Those are the moments. Those are the moments where God uses us and when we feel most alive. Now the question for us this morning is, can you see them? Can you see when those moments come? And when you see them, what are you going to do? These past few weeks, we've been talking about peacemaking and being people of shalom. But friends, it always begins with seeing. Seeing the opportunities to be healers. Seeing the humanity and the dignity in others, especially those who are different from us. Isn't that what this entire parable is all about? The Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. This parable is designed to shock us at our core. It's designed to pull the rug out from under us. That's how it would have been heard in the first century. Samaritans and Jews in the first century were like Catholics and Protestants in the 20th century of Ireland. That kind of hate. Or Jews and Palestinians today. Christians and Muslims. Atheists and religious folk. Yankees fans and Red Sox fans. I've seen some vicious baseball fans. Democrats and Republicans. Can we see the humanity and the dignity in somebody else? And can we see the very fact that that person is also 
created in the image of God. Even if that person can't see it themselves. Think of your enemy. Think of your enemy. And what does Jesus say? Matthew 5, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. The priest and the Levite saw the man lying on the road, but it wasn't enough just to see the man because they walk right on by. Nobody is helped. Many of us see things and then we turn away. Working for shalom begins with seeing, but it has to turn into action. This is the difference between sentimentality and compassion. Sentimentality is an emotion that we feel, but it doesn't necessarily move us to any kind of action. You can see someone suffering on TV and say, oh, that's so sad, it's so terrible. I'm gonna turn the channel. The Samaritan saw the man, and the text says that he was moved with pity. But the word pity is actually better translated as compassion. The Greek word is splagnazimai, splagnazikmai. And it comes from this word splagna, which means your guts. So the man was moved in his guts to his core. You feel pain for someone down in your gut. He was moved with pity. Our closest word that we have in our language is compassion. Co-passion. To suffer with. The Samaritan sees the beaten man and it affects him down to his core. It moves him. He feels something to the point of being compelled to do something about it. Can we allow ourselves to see others, to see their dignity, to see their humanity, to see their pain, and be moved by it? I'd like to invite Tom Dillon to come up and share a story about this. It begins with seeing, friends, being moved to do something about it. Peacemaking, restoring shalom always begins with seeing. Let's pray. Oh God, we are grateful for your love. Lord, and and this is a prayer that we have often prayed here at Mountain View that you would break our heart for what breaks yours, that you would help us to see people no matter how different they may be, to see people as you see them, created in your image. Lord, give us your Holy Spirit, your wisdom, and your passion. Amen.